0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Uh, just before I actually get into the um, main aspect of my message. Um, today, I also remember something with... Um, some fond affection actually and just want to tell you the story very quickly it's not related at all it just happened to be today the 8th of June um, this went back to 1972 I'm sure most of you weren't alive then um, well in fact on the 8th of June 1972 I was a paper round boy you know you was paid one pound fifty a week to deliver newspapers, six mornings of the week. And normally you'd have to be up by six o'clock. And I'm telling you, the road that I had to deliver on, uh, wow, it was mainly people who would be reading all those broadsheet newspapers. You know, it was a very sort of what you could say, semi-detached road made up of principally people that were of professional background. And in those days, there wasn't such a thing as internet. And social media, the main mode of communication was through the newspaper, television, and radio. But on this particular morning, it came a short time after I had actually come into a saving encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure many of you can remember that during that first few days or the first period, there was this kind of um, you, you sort of get on a quest of euphoria, this feeling of joy and everything around you look very rosy and wonderful. But on this particular morning, as I was out delivering the newspapers, you know, you would normally just make a curious glance on the front page. But this morning on the 8th of June, there was something that really struck me and brought my faith right down to ground. And it was, on every newspaper on that day, the Daily Telegraph, the Times, even the Financial Times, the Guardian, everyone was a picture of a young girl named Phan Thi, Kung, Phan Thi to pronounce it, Phan Kim Phuc. And she was a young Vietnamese of about nine years old. And there it was. She had just been the victim of a napalm attack during the Vietnam War. And some of you may have seen the image. And there she was start naked running down the road screaming number for the children also and I think everyone in the world or in the western world was shocked by that image and I as a 15 year old was really troubled and distressed by it and the first question came to my mind was where is God in this surely but surely God is supposed to look after the children supposed to protect children from such and I remembered going to Bible class the following Sunday and asked my Sunday's, my Bible class teacher, Peter Owen, and um, asked him, said, what's happening here, Peter? You know, this is not supposed to happen to a young child. And I remember his words. His words was, irrespective of what happens, and sometimes we don't understand, but God's grace is always sufficient. And as a young person still couldn't quite comprehend and reconcile that says but you know what is what is what does grace really mean? it was only in 2006 at Westminster Chapel that I had the privilege of seeing this now middle-aged woman Fanti Kim Fook, stand up there and gave her a testimony for Jesus Christ and she said if it wasn't that episode So many people would not have come, including in particular someone who came and brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to her. So through her suffering, through her time of distress, God was able to work his grace through her life. That she came to have the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And now she's happily married and a real witness for Jesus Christ. So I remember today with fun affection Kim Fook. But let me now move on to today's subject. We're going to talk today about that subject that sometimes we tend to shy away from. I was speaking to my niece in Atlanta yesterday and, um, you know, a very sound Christian. She said to me, there are three things that people don't like to talk about in the church. One is sex, the other one is politics, and the other one is money. Well, I'm going to talk today about money, Christian giving. So let me just um, bring today, proceeding before the Lord. Dear Lord, just asking you that your Holy Spirit will move on our hearts, will direct our thoughts. And Lord, whatever is done and said is done to the glory and honor of your name. Give us the wisdom, Lord, that we will know what you intend for us to do as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Christian giving. There are two pictures I'd like um, you all to look at, if it's possible, please, yeah, of two men. One name is William Kiffin. Can somebody get up that picture for me, please? The image, yes, right, yeah. Yes, there are two men I'd particularly like you, two reverends, two people. One name was William Kiffin, and the other one was named Reverend Hike. And... um, I'm not going to say a lot about those two men at this moment in time, but towards the end, I will share a little bit more. But these two men, two ministers, had two very different perspectives about the old principle of Christian giving. But I'll come back to them later on. But what I'd like to say is that over the past 40 years, self identified evangelicals have given between two. And 3% of their incomes to churches and Christian organizations. Compare that with um, your Muslim counterpart, they're required to give 4%. Right? But evangelicals generally give between two and three percent. Stewardship, financial stewardship is really a crucial part of the Christian life. And when you think of two to three percent, that is a very, you know, I think that is very regrettable, that is very sad. Right, It doesn't really reflect right, our financial commitment to the work of God. My old pastor and mentor, Ken Vincent, used to always say that the last things to be converted in a believer's life is their bank account. I wonder how many of that he was referring to when he says that. However, on any topic, we have to filter the Old Testament through the grid of Jesus and the apostles' teachings. In Matthew 23 verse 23 Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that they neglected the weightier things of the law and although they tithe right they still tithe with an unwilling heart with a reluctant heart now many people in reading this account where Jesus addresses the religious leaders in particular about money would say that Jesus was actually promoting tithing in one sense he did But he did so to the Jewish people under the Mosaic law. He didn't set that out for the Gentile church. However, this is not a command by Jesus for us to totally neglect the principle of tithing, right? or giving to God. Because when you read through the teachings in the book of Acts, the book of the epistles and revelations, it often calls us to be generous and to be sacrificial in our giving. That goes way beyond tithing. Tithing just asks for 10%. But the, um, the apostles and Jesus' teachings now begin to ask us to be sacrificial. And if you remember in David's, David on one occasion says, he will not give anything to God that will not cost him anything. And we have to ask ourselves that question. Do we give to God that cost us? Or do we just give to God that which is convenient to us? When you look at UK Christian spending patterns it is really sometimes very difficult to see that there's any sacrifice in our giving very often people ask or wonder what are the basic biblical principles for Christian giving now as we begin now to unfold this message I hope you will understand a little clearer what the word of God is saying about how we should approach giving financially but before I go into the meeting my sermon, I'd like to ask, shall I say, Elder Mark <laughs> or Brother Mark to come up and just share the word of God. That has to be always our, the basis in which we teach.
1: Okay. Come on. Yeah? If I can ask you all just to stand as we read God's word. Um. turn in, in your Bibles, hopefully you have a Bible review, to Matthew six fourteen, yeah, for if you forgive others tr- their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses,
0: Sorry. right, okay, so the passage. Oh, was it one to four, yeah.
1: Matthew six one. Forgive me, sorry, it's the wrong verse. So yeah. Matthew six one to four. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, and they, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And also, let's now turn to 1 Corinthians um, 16, verse, verses 1 to 2. First Corinthians 16, 1 to 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to, do, are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And now, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 9 to 15. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I gave my judgment. This, this benefits you who, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it, well, doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and, um, and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should, apply, should supply their need, so that their, their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written. Forgive me. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And finally, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Right. So, I'd just like to um, share, Mark. Okay, <laughs> Mark? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, didn't want it going off. <laughs> right, yeah, I just want to share 11 lessons, um, just around the whole principle of Christian giving. Lesson, yeah, the first one is... Yeah, lesson number one. The Lord Jesus expects and requires us to give. Right? Yeah? Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 6, when you give, not if you give. So he requires us to give. It's, you know, it's, it's a requirement to give. Right? Hence, you know, when we are giving, it is not optional. It is not something like, well, do we or do we not. But it is rather essential. It is essential as part of our servitude to Christ we often hear folks say in the Old Testament they had to give but not in the New not only if we give if we want to this is clearly not Jesus' teaching he expects all his followers to be givers in Mark 12 verse 17 he had a situation where the Pharisees, the religious leaders were trying to trap him and they said "Um, should we give to the Romans and obviously if he's Time to be saying to give to the Romans. Um, should we pay taxes to Caesar, in other words? It would seem like he was in some ways, you know, not in support of their position. But if he said no, then he would perhaps be accused of sedation. But Jesus said, what was Jesus' report? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto God what is God. In other words, right, give to the civic authorities that which we are required to do according to your financial responsibility, but also give to God according to what you are required to do. Ask yourself the question. When we're having these debates and discourse about what we should or whether we should give, whether we shouldn't give or whether we should give to the church, do any of us ever have that debate or discourse when we talk about paying our taxes? Interesting. I think I learned this from my wife. She said that, interesting, that... The government does not leave it to the individual to give taxes; they often take it at source because they know our people can be very unreliable, right, and not be trusted. So none of us have a debate, or seems to have any sort of, um, you know, hesitancy in paying our taxes. In principle, even as Christians, we would say to people, encourage as John the Baptist once says, "Pay your taxes." So therefore, why do we then have all these kind of, um, you know, you know, questions, and why do we have all these kind of, um, it seems, barriers or difficulties around contributing to the work of God? Let us look in our conscience and see, right, if we are doing so. So the question I'd like to ask to close this particular lesson is: Are we given? Are we truly given? Lesson number two. The Lord Jesus wants us to give for the right reasons. Jesus warned his disciples not to give for the sake of being admired by men. In Matthew 6, one which Mark just read, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. It's quite interesting. Sometimes when you've got these um, major charity appeal on the television or media or whatever, you get these people who are high-profile whether um, famous for whatever reasons, or very wealthy. And they seem to always want their names, right, to be associated, right, with their kind of, um, you know, volume of giving or their level of giving or their contribution or generosity. It seems almost as if if you're not prepared to somehow yeah, give them that profile, give them that, that acknowledgement, give them that kind of recognition. They rather seem reluctant to take part, that goes in contrary to what Jesus teach. Jesus says, when we give, we are to give for the glory of God. When we're giving to other people, let not our your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So Jesus is saying here, right, we are to give with the right motive, which is to glorify God. Yes, to bless others, but it is principally to glorify God. Not to bring glory, not to bring attention to ourselves. Not to gain acknowledgement, not to give not so that people can say, oh, you know, such and such is very kind and generous. Such and such, God, so. No, no, no. He says, give it for the glory of God. Give it for the right motive. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we giving for God's praises or are we giving for man's praises? Lesson number three. The Lord Jesus wants us to practice benevolence. Or charitable giving. He wants us to, to practice, to, to become part and parcel of our very way of actually managing our finances. So often it becomes a secondary and optional exercise. But no, it should become part and parcel of our stewardship of our own funds. Jesus says, when we give to the poor, He is not saying, if you give to the poor, or should we give? He says, when you give to the poor. In other words, there's an expectation that just as our God has blessed us, God expects us to bless others. He didn't give us, you know, financial rewards or financial incentives or whatever way we want to define it for our own sake alone. He gave us that we may be a blessing to others, that we might demonstrate God's love, God's kindness, God's grace to us. So we ought to become ourselves a blessing unto others. Jesus commands this. We give glory to him when we are given. As one friend said to me, we are given wealth for it to share. Now I'm not preaching a particular political ideology. I'm just simply going by what? The Bible says, he says we give him well to cheer, and just to share very briefly. Back in 1985, I recall I was invited by a friend to a charity appeal at Lambeth Town Hall. This friend was very high up in politics at the time, and um, she was moved by the famine that was really scourging. Ethiopia. this You remember that was around the period when Ban um did you know their mass charity appeal etc and there it was this friend had organized a concert amongst the local churches and on this night in Lambeth Town Hall there was hardly any room for standing the number of people who attended and even during the course of um, The praise and worship, people seems to have got very, very hyped and you know, seems to have said, as we say in old Pentecostal term, got into the spirit during the course of the meeting. Then we came for the real purpose of why we had gathered, and that was to invite people to make a contribution that would go towards Ethiopian appeal. And after all, and I say this, yeah not tongue-in-cheek after all the coins and pennies were counted the amount was 25 pounds and my friend said she felt so ashamed because amongst her political colleagues where most of them were not necessarily believers or necessarily believed in God she had collected over 300 pounds in just asking for donations within five minutes but what even troubled me more and almost got me, as we would say, very angry, was when someone said to me about the issue why they hadn't given. They said, no, those people in Ethiopia, they're under some generational curse. It's the reason why the famine is visiting them and therefore, who are we? Right? To go against God's will. Right? By giving them anything in which to actually get through the day or get through the week. I thought, let me not respond to that, because if I did, I might have something. But that was a justification given. That was a rationale. But going back to the point, we are required to give. So don't turn off your ears. I'm not saying, you know, you need to do it out of any kind of guilt. No, no, no. Right? But let us be sensitive. Let let us be here and be sensitive. Let us the needy around us. Right? Jesus says to give to those who can't give you back. Sometimes they don't even show can they don't even show appreciation, but you're not giving to get some sort of um reciprocation. You're giving unto the glory of God. So let us be purveyors of giving. So the question is: do we give amply enough to the church that she can be generous and benevolent giving? So are we giving to our fellowship? that our fellowship can also bless others. We don't get funding from the government. The government don't give us grants and some of the sources give us grants that they, you know, to give out. No. Right? We are right, the financial stability of our own fellowship. We are the ones that God has put here to enable us to be financially healthy, to give To each other give to the church right not somebody from outside not some other institution or some other body. Lesson four the Lord Jesus reminds us that our giving is ultimately to the all-seeing heavenly father for Jesus says even going back into that verse when you give your father see who sees what is done in secret will reward you in other words in our giving God himself, the Father, sees the very depth of our heart, sees our giving. He is the one in the first place who gives us the means, gives us the capacity. And in a sense, he is holding us accountable. So we're not just simply adding to the church's budget. We're giving up a thank offering to God when we are actually giving in His service. So we must always be looking that our giving is ultimately to please God, not to please man, not even to please ourselves. Some of us may need that at times. Time, time said yes, makes us feel good. So, but no, no, no. Principally, it is to please God the Father. So the question is: Are we conscious of the fact that our giving is to the Lord and is seen by the Lord, not by other people, but it is to His glory. Lesson five. The Bible teaches that Christian giving is an act of worship. In connection with the previous point about giving glory to God, we see that this truth is stressed in another way, in Paul's words, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save. Paul here is teaching the Corinthians, which is our lesson for us, that they're taking up to the collection is an act of worship, which is to be part of our regular day's worship. So when we come and we give offering, it's not something that the pastors have decided, or church tradition has decided, no, no, no. This is laid down in Scripture. Our offering is an integral part of our worship. So by us giving our offering, it is us actually engaging in worshiping God himself. So we are worshiping God. And note here that Paul is also saying a collection for the saints, so even when we're giving for the purpose and the blessing of others, it's ultimately still to worship God. It is not just to attend to the needs of others, it's ultimately still to actually worshiping God. So do we realize that giving is a part of worship? is our worship in this area abundant or is it inhibited is given to the church a priority with us lesson six the bible teaches that christian giving should be done in light of the incarnation going back to the point many christians argue about whether the tithe of our income that is 10 percent is still the standard for our giving to the church there's still this debate going on but i would say that Those who generally dispute the issue of the time and the 10%, and yeah, you know, I don't want anybody to feel guilty at this moment, right? Quite often it's used as an excuse for giving less than 10%. It is not used as a basis to say, right, how generous can we be to God's work? It's more a case of how little can we give to God's work, right? You have to ask yourself individually if you're opposed to tithe. Are you giving as God moves in your heart to give? Are you using that argument as a basis to say, well, right, less than 10%, I can somehow get by. I can somehow appease my conscience. I can somehow salvage my conscience by giving less than 10%. Right? Yeah? Paul himself when if you, if you read through the word of God, addresses this in another way. For, he says, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Right? Jesus gave everything. Right? That is the standard. The method that Jesus gave everything for us. That should be the standard for our giving. That should be the principle. That should be the motivator. We are and should be inspired by Christ's priceless gift in our giving. He gave his entire life for us. We can never repay him. We can never repay God. So why do we then, therefore, have all these kind of inner Debates around giving as much as God has laid on our hearts to give. And let me assure you that if God has laid on your heart to give so much, even though it might be sacrificial, God is not going to leave you impoverished. God is not going to leave you. I'm sure there are many people in here can testify to that fact. Right? God is not going to ask you to give more than you have the capacity to give. God wants you to just give in faith. Lesson seven. So the question for that one is, do we try to get by with giving as little as possible to the Lord or do we give in view of the Lord's costly sacrifice? Are we giving in light of what Jesus done for us? He gave everything for us. Gave his entire life. And do we give in light of that or do we give as little as we can? Lesson seven. The Bible teaches that Christian giving should be done in accordance with our means. Paul is quite clear in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 12 on this. For He says, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, in other words, put it in another way, Paul is saying that you should give in proportion to what God has given you. He said this in this way in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. This means at least two things. One, since we are all supposed to give proportionately, those who have more money are expected to give more. We who are particularly blessed material must remember this. And two, the Lord never asks us to give what we do not have or contribute beyond our means. So he's not, God is not saying, right, you go and find a thousand pounds when you're struggling 500 right god is not unjust god is not an unreasonable taskmaster god knows what we can afford to give all he asks is us to give according to our capacity to give right he doesn't use any sort of um manipulation to try and get more out of us than we can afford as you find some of these prosperity preachers tend to do that is not god speaking lesson eight so did sorry forego. The, 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 the question I'd just like to leave with you on that On lesson seven are we really giving in proportion to the material blessings that the Lord has given us so are we giving commensurate with what God has placed at our disposal and according to our hearts right? lesson eight the Bible teaches that the kindness of God's blessing to us is connected to the kindness of our Christian giving Though it may seem strange, both Jesus and Paul emphasize that there is a relation between our giving to the Lord and the Lord's giving to us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap spearingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the question is, again, do we give as little as we can afford not to miss to God? Or do we give, right, as much? God actually keeps an account, not for the sake of being vindictive or being that, but God is just, God is fair, right? So if you are only, in a sense, investing little into God, why should you expect more from God? It's so, you know, one of the things that um, troubles me is that we as Christians expect so much from God bless me, Lord, bless me, with, bless me this way, bless me so much more. But the question is, do we give to God's work according to our capacity? And the Bible here is saying, it's a promise. It's not a threat. If we're giving bountifully, God will bless us accordingly. But if we're giving sparingly, yeah, why should we expect more from God? That just seems reasonable and fair, isn't it not? So the lesson is, do we realize that the Lord has given us so much so that we can give so much? Lesson nine. The Bible teaches that Christian giving must be willing giving, free giving. We learn that in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do just as he had purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. So God don't want you to be somehow going against your own you know desire to give if you're not willing to give don't put it God is not gonna bless it that is not how God wants us to give he wants us to give out of that spirit of generosity give out to that willingness so in one sense Christian giving is mandatory but it's also voluntary so God wants us to give out of a generous, yeah, generous heart out of a willing heart But he also wants us to understand that our giving is also an act of obedience. So those two things to come together. So there should be joy in our giving, but also to understand that I'm doing this because it's an act of obedience to the Lord. Right? Not that I'm doing a favor to God. As some people would, as you see sometimes happen within, right, non-Christian world. Right? I'm giving this act of generosity because it really makes me look good. It really makes me feel good. No, no, no. We're giving because it's an obedience. It gives glory to God. But at the same time, we're giving it because, right? Yeah, In our hearts, we know that it is glorifying him. So is our giving to the church something we do wholeheartedly or indifferently or grudgingly? Right. Ten. Yes, moving quite quickly. The Bible teaches that Christian giving ought to be cheerful giving. As Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. This is a truly amazing assertion. Paul assures us here that the Lord takes especially delight in those who are joyful, energetic, and merry givers. So God is delighted when we are giving from a heart of cheerfulness, right? It's not like what sometimes you see happens that I've known where you do something for somebody, and my word, if you look on the message on their face, you thought, "Wow, have we done something wrong?" Or it's almost as if they take it for granted that. Well, so what? No, no, it brings a light to the heart of God when we are giving, right? Out of a spirit of cheerfulness. So, is there joy in our heart as we give? Can we truly be characterized as a cheerful giver? Thus, point: the Bible teaches that Christian giving serves. To build God's kingdom. In Luke 3. Verse 1 to 3. We learn that Jesus' disciples were supported by a number of wealthy women. Furthermore, we understand that Paul was financially supported. By the husband and wife team Aquila and Priscilla. So when we are giving. When we are investing I would say. In Calvary Chapel. We are investing in the growth of Calvary Chapel. As Bertram and said you know mentioned earlier we're moving right to a new location are we prepared to invest in Calvary Chapel's future yeah of course yes it all depends upon God's direction God's resources but part of God's resources is what he has given us are we prepared to invest in Calvary Chapel's future So the question is, are we investors in Child Calvary Chapel's long-term purposes as an evangelical, as a missionary church, as a church which sets out to serve those who are needy? We're moving into a part of Lewisham where the demography tells us, right, there's a higher level of poverty, a higher level of unemployment, a higher level of need. Are we going to be a fellowship that going to be an instrument that God can use to make a difference in that community yes by all means the gospel of Jesus Christ is first and foremost but in as much as we preach we should also prepare to give So are we prepared to be instruments of God's transformation in that community? But let me now conclude. I, I don't know if you did manage to get those pictures up, brother, of those stupid characters. Right. Yes. Okay, now I've, I've said the most juiciest bits for the last. Right. Reverend William Kiffin, one of my heroes, and Reverend Hike. First of all, let me just speak a little bit about Reverend Kiffin. Right, one of the unsung heroes of church's history. Right. Each week, I tend to travel along City Road from London Bridge on the way to one of my places of work, Manor House, and I would go along a cemetery named Bonhill Cemetery, which is perhaps I'd say. Contains the remains of some of the most famous characters in English history. You, I'm sure, you'd have heard of the name like William Blake. Um, is it John or Dave Smith? Dave Smith, Smith anyone? Yes, sir. Right. Yes, he is yes, the founder of yeah, London City Mission. Right. Daniel Defoe? Name? All of you people who have read English literature must have heard of Daniel Defoe. Daniel Defoe, no one? Tim? Thank you very much, Tim. (laughs) Right, you'll get a merit mark at the end. Um, (laughs) Thomas Hardy? Yes? All right, okay. John Bunyan? Right. All these people are buried in this cemetery, Bun Hills. Not very small. It hasn't been used since I think the middle of the 19th century. But there's one person buried in that cemetery that stands out most, and that is William Kiffin. When he was nine. In 1625, the plague that slept through London took both his parents and left him with six sores. And he was very ill, you know, on the point of death. But somehow, through God's grace, he survived. He was placed in the custody of um, a guardian who quickly squandered his inheritance. Not a lot was left, but squandered his inheritance for his own pleasure. And William was left, you know, really abandoned. But whilst as a 15-year-old wandering the streets of London as a miserable young man, he entered a crowded church service and subsequently became a Christian. He joined the church and also became an itinerant preacher and preached everywhere he could. But he became such a menace to the established church that they did everything to put him in pray- prison, and put him in jail. But this didn't stop him because even in prison, in jail, he was still sharing the good news. Kiffin studied the scriptures night and day. And in 1643, he left England to escape persecution and went to Ulan for a while. But while he was in Ulland, he entered the wool trade and made a considerable amount of money while there before returning to England. He returned to Ulland again in 1645 and once again entered the shipping business while still preaching the gospel. And during the course of entering the shipping business, he became one of the wealthiest men in the world. He was so wealthy that King Charles II came to him for a loan of 30,000. But what Kiffin did was he says, okay, you know what? The king wants 30,000 loan, which I'm not going to get back. What I'll do, I'll give him 10,000 pounds. Now put 10,000 pounds in the context of the 17th century and yes you're talking about what millions right okay but in spite of Kiffin's wealth Kiffin stayed faithful to the Word of God and he was persecuted and when they could not get to Kiffin they decided you know what people do when they can't get to what do they do target your family so his son was poisoned his grandsons, I think, were also executed. And, you know, dare I say, shame, you know, you know with some reluctance. It, these were people from the established church who was doing this. Because, obviously, he stood on the word of God. He didn't stood on the politics of the day. He stood on the word of God. And that's why he, was, he became, you know, anointed. But, Kiffin had a huge talent for raising wealth, for making money. But... The thing that stood out about Kiffin as a Christian minister, who had this gift of creating wealth, was that a, great, a greater part of his money went to helping the struggling churches, the persecuted believers, the poor, the destitute. And when Kiffin actually died at the age of 86, he lived to 86, he outlived everyone in his family practically, right? He became a champion of the evangelical movement. And the few what you could say distant relatives who was waiting because they knew that Kiffin was this man who had generated a huge amount of wealth couldn't wait for his funeral to over to suddenly try to find out how much he had left and see if they could. They were shocked there wasn't anything left. All that huge wealth had been given to others, given to the work of God and as a result of Kiffin investing in God's work we are the beneficiaries today because it was through his wealth that the evangelical movement the bible believing ministries was able to continue right so I give God thanks for his life very quickly now right? I just want to turn over to Reverend Ike the fact that one is white one is black is totally coincidental nothing at all to do with their cultural race let me ask you a question who is known as the godfather of soul? James Brown, James Brown. well Reverend Hike is perhaps the godfather of the prosperity gospel Reverend Frederick is his full name I struggle to pronounce but I'll make a go Reverend Frederick Equin Coyta was a flamboyant minister better known as the Reverend Hike, who preached the blessings of material prosperity to a large congregation in New York, and to television and radio audiences nationwide. This is going back from the 50s and the 60s, right? I'm not talking recently. Finding the traditional Christian message constricting, he moved to Boston in 1964 to find the Miracle Temple, Faith Healing Church. And in his own words, he says, I became the best in Boston at snatching people out of wheelchairs, off their crutches, pouring some oil over them, while commanding them to walk to see our ear. Right? You know, the power of suggestions. But he found that again, not really meeting his aspirations, which were financial. So he moved away from the faith healing ministry and moved into the prosperity gospel. And... Reverend Hike, quite quickly, in New York, would have 5,000 people attending, simply wanting to find out how they could become wealthy, yeah, through his interpretation of the gospel. He would be well known for saying things like, money up your armpits, a room full of money, and there you are, just tossing around it like a swimming pool. You know, very charismatic, but he knew, and he knew how to reach his audience, Reverend Hike's philosophy held that St. Paul was wrong. Jesus got it wrong. So that the root of all evil is not the love of money, but rather the lack of it. It was a message that challenged traditional Christian perspective about finding salvation through love and the intercession of the divine. As far as Reverend Hike was concerned, the word to prosper was to forget about pie in the sky and the by and by and to look inside your own divine power, your own capacity to generate wealth. He would often say, this is the do it yourself church. The only savior in this philosophy is God that is in you. And now I don't intend to offend anyone here, but some of the ministers who benefited from Reverend Hykes philosophy, yeah, I say that with, you know, with Robert Tilton. Quiflo Dollar, Bill Whitston, Eddie Long, Kenneth Hagen, Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, Benny Hinn, and Pap robertson They're just a few. He was a person who set the tone and if you look into these people's ministries you'll see much of Reverend Hike's inspiration. He was one of the first evangelists to grasp the power of television. At the height of his success in the 1970s, he reached an audience estimated at two and a half million. In return for spiritual inspiration, he requested cash donations from his parishioners, from his television and radio audiences, and from the recipients of his extensive mailings, preferably in paper currency, not coins. He would often say, oh, you know, people putting in coins makes me a bit nervous in the church, right? Right? Whether legitimately or not, the money flooded in, making him a multimillionaire and enabling him to flaunt the power of his creed with a show of sumptuous clothes, ostentatious jewellery, luxurious residen- residences, and exotic o- automobiles. He often was quoted as saying, "My garages run it over." So yeah, and just very quickly now, as I, I come to the last few lines of what the Lord has said to me. I first heard of Reverend Hike uh, again, around early 1970, from my father. My father lived in New York, and my father was, for a time, troubled with Christian faith. But while he was in New York, he happened to went along to one of Reverend Hike's service, and he said he was just completely astonished what he was hearing. But he was even more startled that when he found out the minister whose church he was attending at the time was also at Reverend Syke service. And for a good many many years, my father refused to go anywhere near a church, even when he returned back to the UK. And the reason was he could not get away from the fact that these people who were supposed to be there helping the poor, giving them a message of hope. As he saw it, they were exploiting the poor. And you know, he says he's in these parts of New York because he said if you want to see the, you know, the wide difference in wealth and poverty, he says go to certain parts of New York. And he says these people, like Reverend Ike, would come into the most destitute of all communities and squeeze out the last cent out of every individual. And so for many years, my dad did not want to hear anything about the Christian gospel just on the basis of this experience but thank God he returned to faith before the Lord finally took him home and today we know that we have many reverent hikes out there looking for opportunities to extort and right, to fleece the people So in closing, one question I'd like to leave with all of us here. Are we more in sympathy with what William Kiffin stood for? Or are we somehow gonna allow ourselves to be entrapped and influenced by the Reverend Ikes today? we as a church, we as a fellowship, where are we in our giving? Where are we in terms of investing in God's work? You can only ask that individually before God. Let us pray. And ask Tim if you can just come. Lord, this is A difficult subject. I just pray, O Lord, that you will really enable us to examine our hearts, examine our finances, examine every aspect of our giving to see if we are doing what is rightful in your sight, if we are giving to your glory, if we are giving to the building of your kingdom. If we are sensitive to those that are in need, those who are in poverty, those who are less able to fend for themselves than we are. Lord, enable us to become cheerful givers, generous. For you gave your life willingly for us, Lord. You held back nothing. Your sacrifice was the ultimate, Lord. How can we ever repay you? And yet, Lord, for every penny, for every pound that comes into our possession, it is ultimately given by you and you alone, Lord. And how oh, dear, Lord, we hold back what you have challenged us to give. And we're just asking you, dear Lord, that Calvary Chapel, amongst other things, Calvary Chapel here in South London, amongst other things, will be known as a church that gives, a church that gives sacrificially, a church that gives to the glory of God, a church that gives that your kingdom might grow, a church that people from all different walks of life can come here, And find that the all, total God is able to respond to every aspect of their needs. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.